morning and welcome to the Morning Coffee Show and hope you're having a great coffee. It's a beautiful day up here again. It's a bit colder, so then it's kind of sunny, blue skies and um, fresh, refreshing air. And um, this is going to be just a short one, but we have gotten the books now from, from Seattle um, and we started reading. So we're about 60 pages in uh, in the first volume. So we just want to say a couple of first impressions about this. So our main focus is is Dante and the and the Renaissance and kind of the role of these these two things in in how things developed in Europe the last five or like seven hundred years. But so this book is interesting because it has this theory about where it, it goes into looking at how after Dante and then you have the the black the black uh, plague the black death you have Petrarch and the the, the humanist movement and then as this also sees it, a move into the more pagan part of of, uh, of a way of looking at life, and then he's discussing how the things could have gone differently and how it could also have become a turn towards the more eastern part and kind of the Greek eastern part. So we're just going to point out a couple of things. So the book is called the first book is called The Age of Paradise. It's about the first thousand years up until twenty sorry ten fifty four the the schism. Uh, the author is John Strickland, and we're going to look at uh, just a few excerpts here. So uh, one thing is also that it's very helpful to understand the purgatory of Dante even better because you know more of the of the like what Dante is drawing from around the year 1300. And there's also another overall point there, which is that um, it's interesting to read something that is. Uh, usually the, the history of Europe, at least if you come from the northwestern part of Europe, you see it just as ancient times, medieval times, renaissance, modern times. But then the ancient times is the western part of the Roman Empire, so Byzantium is, is just like almost not mentioned. So it's, it's very interesting to learn more about that perspective because it gives you a fuller picture also of the foundations. So, um, but then this thing, so he says here... Um, it's talking about the transformational imperative, and then uh, that the this is rooted in the Christian virtue of humility. So this is kind of the maybe the main virtue of the Purgatory Mountain. It starts with kind of it's repeated in so many ways in the opening of the Purgatory with Dante, like he's kneeling before. First Cato, he's kneeling to the angel that's coming with the souls. He's putting the reed around his waist as a symbol of the humility and this also intellectual argument that in order to learn something, there has to be an acknowledgement that there are still things that that are beyond your understanding at the at the moment. So this is repeated as the uh, it's the guiding thing and it's also the the offsetting of pride. So it's the this is the first thing we are seeing also when we get into the terraces. Is you have these uh, in uh, marble these carvings of humility, and then when he says there uh, a different response to the transformative imperative appeared at the time of the Renaissance, varied by unduly pessimistic accounts of the human condition that had been mounting in Western Christendom for centuries. Uh, the Christian East was comparatively free of this development. Intellectuals began to redirect the imperative, as it were, in an external direction resulting in a mode of transformation rooted in the Christian virtue of zeal. Just meaning that uh, there, there came a point where the waiting that was kind of promised uh, 
inrush of the medieval times with the, the Christian tradition came to a point where people were wary of waiting as well. It's a bit simplified, but that is kind of part of the argument. And especially the, the Black Death is, is very often acknowledged as this kind of final uh, point where, where much of Europe lost its, its uh, faith, in a sense. And then came humanism, and then came the whole Renaissance. But it's still interesting how this is drawing from Dante and how it's contradicting much in Dante as well. So Dante is both laying much of the foundation for for the appreciation of the of the classical tradition with the Greek and also the pagan philosophy, the profane philosophy. At the same time, Dante is constantly um, warning against individualism and against the hubris and the intellectual pride, which is in some ways also at the same time blooming in the Renaissance. So, um, and he also makes the argument here that it could have gone the other way. It could have gone more towards the, the Eastern tradition instead of, of uh, embracing the, uh, the, the pagan tradition of the Greek uh, myth and philosophy. So that's some of the like, first impressions. There's also lots of Roman history, which is interesting about, for example, the emperor Tiberius, who built a big palace at the island of Capri called Villa Jovis. And Jovis is Jova, Jupiter, or Zeus. So, and he built this in part because he didn't want to be assassinated like Caesar. So he, he builds this palace and he lives there for most of his ruling time. Uh, but it's a bit, little bit fun, a bit on the side, but like uh, we visited Capri about 10, a bit more than 10 years ago. And uh, we didn't go to Villa Jovis, but we... We experienced the feeling, especially there's one, uh, there's one place there where you can uh, yeah, just you have the view of the mountains and it, it's such an immense beauty. This is kind of just outside uh, the Amalfi Coast area, so it's just the, the the light and and the sea and kind of this blinking sun sunlight in the ocean beneath you when you're looking out and at the islands. It's just a, like this a incredible splendor being there. So um, you get Tiberius, and then you get some of the other ones with uh, Caligula and Nero and, and some of these big figures who are, uh, and Marcus Aurelius as well. So it's a lot of Roman history, which is always grounding things. So um, that's what we're going to say for this one. So this is the opening. It's, uh, again, the first volume is about the first thousand years. We're really looking forward to starting on the second volume, which we also, we, we have it now. It's been published, which is from 1054 until then the 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 1500 so that's when you get both dante and the the beginning of the renaissance but a bit of um kind of going through the first thousand years and seeing it more from a kind of an eastern even christian perspective is very helpful to understand some of these developments and how like the, there is lots of things happened between or after the fall of the western roman empire and uh, as a final little tidbit about that, so just I remember traveling in Italy uh, about 15 years ago and then coming to Venice and discovering that Venice was at this kind of blooming, flowering pinnacle of wealth and prosperity <laughs> in the like 11, 1200s, which is supposed to be in the middle of the Dark Ages. And it just completely did not fit into that, that picture. But that's partly because Venice was so connected also to the eastern part of the empire. So um, that was kind of the first uh, 
questions about what happened between the fall of the Western Empire and the Renaissance. So now we're getting more uh, more knowledge about that. Okay, so we're going to stop it here. This was uh, <laughs> not that short after all, about eight minutes. Uh, but anyways, we're going to keep updating about like the, our discoveries, reading, reading these two volumes, and uh, hope you're having a great day and a great coffee, some nice things to do today. And as always, thank you so much for listening and see you again in the next episode.